America is deeply reactionary at the moment. Same thing can be said for the church. I think we have worked very hard to try to harmonize the Christian gospel in the American dream. We make a sort of Faustian bargain, a Machiavellian kind of end justifies the means. You're part of our tribe, and if you're part of our tribe, we'll defend you no matter what. And if you're outside of our, our tribe, then you're the enemy. They recast Jesus himself as this ultimate fighting champion. Jesus will not be a mascot for the elephants or the donkeys. Jesus is the lamb, and he's going to reign and rule. Every time the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Caesar is not. Your baptism has made you an exile. You don't belong to this anymore. Political power drives everything. If you cannot criticize your political party, that's your civil religion. You will be respected. You will be in power. It was everything that they ever wanted to hear. The way of the lamb is always love. The way of the lamb is always peace. The way of the lamb is always grace. They say they're rejecting Christianity, but they're actually rejecting a version of American nationalism. I think one of the most important things for American Christians to perceive is that America is not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. If you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. And today is the first Sunday in Lent. Lent is a season of preparation for Easter in which we want to grow. We want to be open to think in new ways, to see our lives in new ways, see our relationship with, with God in new ways, our relationships with others in new ways, and grow and be ready to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus all over again at Easter time. Now, let's be honest, most of us don't like to be challenged. We prefer comfort. We, and we only grow, of course, when we're challenged. And so it's hard for us sometimes to, to be open-minded and think in new ways, especially uh, you know, when we read something that's challenging, like the, the book that, that this Lent series is based on, but we want to grow during the season of Lent. I saw this meme the other day that I love. It says, eh, good enough, mediocrities. I love it. But we don't want to settle for mediocrity, especially during the season of Lent. We want to be open, open to being challenged, and we want to grow. And our Lent series is based on this book entitled Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American, American Exile by Brian Zond. And in this uh, book, Brian Zond discusses the way that Christianity has been mixed with American politics in a way that we have seen come to fruition now, even in the past uh, few months. And every week in this series, we're going to cover two chapters of the book in the, in the sermon, and then you can read those two chapters. And then we're starting a brand new connect group online uh, on Wednesday nights where you can discuss the reading. So you hear the two chapters in the sermon, you read the two chapters for yourself, and then you can discuss those in the online connect group every week leading up to Easter. And the point of the book is that 
early Christianity was countercultural in the Roman Empire, in the time in which Jesus and his first disciples lived. And Brian Zond is wondering if contemporary American Christianity uh, is countercultural to America or if what we see as Christianity is just an endorsement of Americanism. If what we see as Christianity in America is too fused with American politics. And from the publisher's description, Brian Zahn challenges the reader to see and embrace a daring, Jesus-centered Christianity that can again turn the world upside down, which is what was said uh, of the first followers of Jesus. This is a hard-hitting, challenging book. There are people who will read this book and they would just throw it down because they're so offended. It offends their, their political views, their sensibilities, and they just wouldn't want to be challenged and, and open-minded and allow themselves to grow by, leading, by reading a book like this. But we want to grow. We want to be open-minded. We want to understand the times we live in, and we want to follow Jesus Christ. We want to follow Jesus now in the environment that we find ourselves in. And so this Lent, that's how we're challenging ourselves to grow. Now, because it's such an emotional topic, last week we started posting a, a blurb on our, uh, our chats on Facebook and, and well.online.church, and here's what it says. As we sometimes discuss important and emotionally charged issues in this chat, let's commit together to fostering an environment in which we can be open and also where our discussion is always respectful and reflects Christ's love. Thank you for being an example of both honest and loving Dialogue. So as we discuss maybe the reading or something that's said in a sermon in, in our chat, we want to be honest about how we think and how we feel or else it's not a discussion. We want an honest atmosphere where we can actually express our opinions and, and be ourselves. We, we don't want a fake it to make it church. We don't, we, we don't want a hypocrite factory, which is what many churches have been in, in our lives. So we want a place where we can be honest. And this applies to our online connect group as well. But we also want to realize that it's not always what you say, it's how you say it. So we don't want to attack anybody. We don't want to engage in name calling or mocking. We can share out of, out of our own experiences. We can share our own views and do that in a way that is respectful and compassionate. So it's easier said than done. But in this series, we want to be an example that we can discuss even explosive topics, but do that in a way that's compassionate. And thank you for being an example of what that looks like. And today we're co uh, covering chapters one and two. Uh, chapter one is called Conversion, Catacombs, and a Counterculture. And chapter two is called A Camino of Crucifixes. Brian Zahn really likes alliteration, as you will see in the book. And so I'm going to summarize these two chapters today. And then you can read the two chapters for yourself. And then this Wednesday in the new online connect group, you, you can discuss chapters one and two in that group. And you, if you go to wellchurch.org, you can get the link to, uh, to get information about that online connect group. So uh, now, um, as we begin this series based on a book, we know that the, the movie is never as good as the book. And that's probably true here as well. The sermons are probably not going to be as good as, good as the book. And that's why I encourage you to read it. If you're on the fence, you could still order this in time for Wednesday. And, and be able to read the first two chapters and, and discuss it in the online connect group. But I thought for a little discussion, if you're willing to type something in the comments, we would start with something that's a little lighthearted. If you would be willing to type this in the comments right now, what is one book that was definitely better than the movie? 
Now you could probably think of a lot, but what is one book at least that you've read that was definitely better than the movie? Would you type that into the comments right now? What's one book that was definitely better than the movie? And I'm sure that will apply uh, to these sermons as well. So Brian Zond opens uh, the book by telling his own story. He became a Christian in high school during what was called the Jesus Movement in the 1970s. And he said he went from being a Led Zeppelin freak to a Jesus freak. And maybe he remained a Led Zeppelin freak too. There's nothing wrong with that for sure. But for him, as he became a, a follower of Jesus Christ in the 1970s, he saw the connection between the, the countercultural protest of rock and the countercultural way of Jesus. That was just something that was formative in his early years as a follower of Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus and the way of Jesus as counter-cultural. And then in, in the New Testament, the Jesus way, and that is what early Christianity was called, the way, the Jesus way was definitely counter-cultural in the empire of its time, which was the Roman Empire. Rome was a militaristic, a uh, violent empire that conquered surrounding people groups and forced them to submit at the end of a sword. It made people slaves. Uh, it was a place of economic inequality. Most people were indebted or enslaved, and there was a small ruling class that, that lived a life of leisure on the backs of everybody else. Uh, you were expected to say out loud, Caesar is Lord. So there was even uh, a cult of worshiping the emperor. Uh, the ruling class was largely part of the same family. So one uh, large family took over the country. Uh, and in these cults of emperor worship, uh, you were expected to pay homage to this, this human being who claimed to be more than a human being. And people actually worshiped the emperor. Now, do you remember from world history when Benito Mussolini took over Italy in the 1920s and 30s, he made it clear that he wanted to revive the Roman Empire in Italy. He wanted to make Italy great again. He wanted Italy to be able to, to even transcend its glory days of the Roman Empire. In 1937, it was the 2000th birthday of Augustus Caesar. And Mussolini opened a museum called the Augustan Exhibition of Roman Civilization. And Mussolini had this inscribed above the entrance. Italians, you must ensure that the glories of the past are surpassed by the triumphs of the future. So Mussolini wanted to revive the Roman Empire. And that form of government that he created has a name. It starts with an F. You're thinking there may be lots of F words you could use, but what is the name? of this type of government that Benito Mussolini created as he attempted to revive the Roman Empire. It's fascism. So when a modern country decided that it wanted to govern like the Roman Empire, that's called fascism. That's the government that Jesus lived under. Jesus lived in the time of the Roman Empire and he essentially lived in a fascistic, nationalistic culture. That's where Jesus lived. And Brian Zond writes, The original Jesus movement 
was not a pietistic religion of private belief about how to go to heaven when you die. The original Jesus movement was a countercultural way of public life. It was the kingdom of Christ. And as such, it was a rival to the kingdom of Caesar. In our next pub theology on March 2nd, we're talking about the question, uh, in a country that believes in the separation of church and state, what is the role of Christians in American government? And, and then we'll talk about this book. Even if you haven't read the book, you can still be a part of the pub theology. But um, Brian Zond writes that far too many American Christians have been seduced by the draw of political power and empire worship, and maybe even emperor worship, as you see flags flying on the back of trucks driving down the highway. He starts off the book talking about Jesus and what Jesus is like in contrast to the Roman Empire, which in in our modern world we would call fascism. What is Jesus like in contrast to the Roman Empire and fascism and nationalism. Our scripture today is one that Brian Zahn quotes in chapter 2. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter, or at least in his name, to followers of Jesus in a certain part of the Roman Empire. Uh, It was where uh, the the modern country of Turkey is. And this letter that Peter writes uh, to these, these followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire starts like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, and what's that next word? Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is modern Turkey. And then he writes this in chapter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to, the one, or to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so these provinces in the Roman Empire that... that Peter writes this letter to, were on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. And even though they were a part of the Roman Empire, he calls them exiles. Exiles in their own land. Dictionary.com defines exiles as the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. Now, some of these people may have been scattered because of persecution. That's possible. But the meaning here that it finds its, its way through other parts of the New Testament as well is that they are exiles in their own land. Even though they, are, they live in the Roman Empire, somehow they are exiles there. They don't quite fit in to the empire in which they live. Even though they may be citizens of the Roman Empire, their citizenship is somewhere else. They live as resident aliens in their own land. You've heard people say things like, this world is not my home. And, uh, or they refer to themselves as pilgrims, just traveling through. There was, a, there was a guy in a church where I used to be a pastor, and, and you'd ask him how he's doing. And his typical answer was, um, you know, this world is not my home, I'm just traveling through. Just the way he answered the question, but that captured the, me- the meaning of this passage. Uh, the meaning of the word exile 
in this letter. There is this sense that we are in the world, but not of it. This world is not everything God intends it to be. And our citizenship is in heaven. So the Apostle Peter is saying to these followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire that they are exiles in their own land. They're strangers in their own land. One of the main points that Brian Zahn is making in this book is followers of Jesus are exiles on earth. And that includes America. Followers of Jesus are exiles. We are strangers in a strange land. We live in this world, but we're not of it. Our citizenship is somewhere else. Has there been any time in the past five years when you have become acutely aware of that? When you have felt like a stranger in a strange land? Have you, have you ever felt that way during the past five years? Was there a time where you thought, man, I just feel like, you know, everything is, is so messed up. I feel like I'm just like a, a stranger here. I'm a stranger in my own country. I don't understand what's going on in my own country. Or maybe I don't understand what's going on in my own family. Have you felt like that at all over the past five years? And that's anxiety producing, isn't it? When you look around and you're, and you're just thinking to yourself, what is going on? There are, there are things happening and people saying things that I didn't, I didn't know still existed in this country. I, I just wasn't aware of how much this is still a part of our country. Have you felt like a stranger in a strange land? Have you felt like an exile over the past few years? Maybe you've looked around and you've, you've wondered what has happened to America. And it seems now, as we've had several years to, to work through this, what's happening is that we are seeing a resurgence of parts of America that have always been here, but that have been hidden for a while. There is a reason a Confederate flag made its way into the Capitol building on January 6th. That didn't even happen in the Civil War. But you remember, if you've seen video of the, the riot, the insurrection attempt at the Capitol building, how many people were wearing Christian shirts? Shirts with Bible verses on them. Somebody was waving a Jesus flag. And then you have a Confederate flag. And then you have violence. You have a, a fire extinguisher being thrown at a police officer, leading to his death. You have people breaking windows and, and threatening to kill people and, and tweeting things that are violent threats, death threats, wearing Christian t-shirts. And we think, wait, what, is, what, what country is this? I, I didn't know this was still a part of the country, but the truth is, we know now it always has been a part of the country and there, there has been a resurgence of those parts of the country that were hidden for a while. And in fact, for my entire life, I'm, I'm, I'm 43 and so I was born in 1977. For my entire life, I have lived during a resurgence of conservatism in the United States, a move to the, the right wing of the political spectrum in the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, and all the way to now. And in fact, it's not just America that's been happening all over the world, uh, like the, uh, the Iranian Revolution of 1979, and it happened in the UK in the 1980s, and of course in Russia, the former Soviet Union. There's been this rightward move in, in world politics, and that has been the case my entire life, but now we're seeing it move even further to the right as a form of nationalism. And as you know, Christian nationalism is now a term that is in the pop culture lexicon of the United States. Christian nationalism, this fusion 
of nationalism, fascism, and this weird, perverted, militant form of Christianity. Christian nationalism. There has been this move throughout my entire life that has led us to this point. And now we've seen these, these groups of people and this way of thinking now be re-energized in, in a way we haven't seen in decades. So this week, the conservative radio broadcaster Rush Limbaugh died with lung cancer at, at 70 years old. And Twitter blew up with all kinds of reactions to his death. There were conservatives who praised him. There were some progressives who mocked him. There were others who didn't engage in praising him or mocking him. They just told their stories. And I'm always most moved by people just sharing their stories and talking about factual information and, and how it affected them. And an example of that is uh, a filmmaker named Jen Cinco. And she wrote a documentary entitled The Brainwashing of My Dad. This was released in 2015. And she described her dad as a fairly apolitical Kennedy Democrat in the 1960s. He didn't talk about politics that much, wasn't concerned about it, was a moderate person, could see both sides of, of a lot of issues. But she said he changed. During the 1980s and the 1990s, he began consuming right-wing media, particularly Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh was uh, a radio host who really became famous in the early 90s when, Clinton, when uh, Clinton was elected, and Rush Limbaugh you know, played the foil to, to Bill Clinton and Democrats at that time. And she said her dad, who hadn't really been political before, didn't speak about other groups in a disparaging way. Over time, her dad started to, to take on negative views toward people of color. He would make disparaging remarks about black people. He would, he would blame problems in society on people who are gay. This man who never really said anything like that before and was moderate in his views. And then he would make fun of especially Democrats and liberals. He would call liberals stupid. Her dad, who had never really cared, all of the sudden, you know, of course it was, it was gradual, but it seemed sudden because the change was so drastic. He started repeating what he heard Rush Limbaugh say. The trailer of the documentary says, as a filmmaker, Jen Cinco tries to understand the transformation of her father from a non-political lifelong Democrat to an angry right-wing fanatic. She uncovers the forces behind the media that changed him completely. As her journey continues, we discover that her father is a part of a much broader demographic and that the story is one that affects us all. So she tracks the development of right-wing media in the United States. The, the growth of right-wing media in the 80s and 90s that caused this cultural shift in the United States toward the right end of the political spectrum and, and cratered the middle, moderate part of the country. And we have now this divided, divided uh, country that we live in. And she discusses how media manipulation and striking down the fairness doctrine paved the way for this kind of broadcasting that has had such an effect on so many People as a pastor, you know, years ago, I used to be surprised when people would would sing songs, you know, in a church service about loving our neighbor and following Jesus, and then they'd hear a sermon about Jesus, 
And in, in the hallway after church, somebody would say to me, yeah, I love listening to Rush this past week and, and he, how he was making fun of Hillary. Man, liberals are so stupid. I was surprised at first when I heard conversations like that right after a church service. But I started hearing conversations like that more and more over time, so I, I was no longer surprised by it. And eventually I had a realization. Sometime around 10 or 12 years ago, I realized I am not really these people's pastor. Fox News is their pastor. They, maybe they hear me give a sermon, they're in church, in a church service for an hour a week. Cable news is on all day, every day. I, I have no chance at competing with that kind of media consumption all day, every day in their lives. And, and people talk about the Bible and the Bible being authority in their lives, but their views what they, and what they actually said were coming more from Rush Limbaugh than the Bible. It didn't seem like the Bible was the authority in their lives. It seemed like Rush Limbaugh is the authority in their lives. That was a, a moment of realization for me. When I, when I fully comprehended the change that has taken place in our country, that there are so many church-going, self-professing Christians who for the past three or four decades have been adopting these ideas, these, these beliefs, these ways of interacting with other Americans, name-calling, mocking, trolling, you know, just being mean. And, and they call themselves Christians, but more and more their, their, their ideas and the way they speak and the way they treat other people are not informed by Jesus, but by this right-wing media empire in the United States states. Well, as you know, Ulysses S. Grant was a, a Union general in the Civil War, and he became the 18th president of the United States. And in 1875, 10 years after the Civil War ended, he gave a speech in which he said this, if we are to have another contest in the near future of our national existence, in other words, if we're ever going to face another civil war, I predict that the dividing line will not be Masons and Dixons, but between patriotism and intelligence on one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. How's that for a relevant quote? From 1875, President Grant said, if we're, if we're going to have another civil war, it's not gonna be North versus South. It's gonna be patriotism and intelligence on one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. Superstition is religion gone bad. It's a bad form of unthinking, unexamined religion. And then ignorance, just a lack of education, a lack of critical thinking. And then ambition, when certain politicians put their political careers over the good of the country. Grant, Grant's a prophet. Grant said, that's, that's what will lead to another civil war. So being in exile causes you to think and to see your country and to think about your society and how we all function in it. If you're in exile, you don't just lay back in comfort and assume that you're in and everybody else is out. That's not what life is like if you're in exile. If you're in exile, you're looking around and you're thinking about how society works and how you fit into it. You're aware of the different components of society. 
and why things are the way they are because they affect you. You're not just sitting back in comfort. You're not in a place of privilege where you can just be blind to all these realities because your life is good and so who cares how other people are doing. That's That's not what an exile does. An exile is forced to look around and think deeply about life and about our country and about how things work. And so that's why Brian Zahn makes the point in the book, the followers of Jesus never just accept the party line or worship our country or our president or some media personality. We have a higher allegiance than that. As exiles, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are people who should be committed to doing what is right, not what is popular. There are American Christians who might be offended by that statement, that we should have a higher allegiance than America. But actually, that's one of the things I appreciate most about America. I love America. I've traveled a little bit around the world, and I'm thankful when I get to come back home. I love living in America. And one of the things that I believe makes America great is that in America, we acknowledge that we're a nation under God. Now, those words were added to the Pledge of Allegiance in, uh, in the 1950s. And that may be offensive to people who believe that's not a separation of church and state. But here's what that means to me. America is a nation under God, and that means America is not God. We acknowledge as a people, even in our Declaration of Independence, we, we ground our inalienable rights in a creator. We don't say that we are endowed by our president with certain inalienable rights, or that we're endowed by, thank God, Congress with certain inalienable rights, or that we are endowed by America with certain inalienable rights. We say we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. We have a history in this country of acknowledging the highest authority, a higher authority even than America itself, a higher authority than the American government. We acknowledge a higher power. We believe we are one nation under God. America is not God, but we're under God. And so as followers of Jesus, we don't just accept whatever our political party tells us or what our country's cultural myths tell us or what some president tells us. We think deeply as exiles, strangers in a strange land about how society really works and what's really going on and what forces are behind it. And then as we realize these things, we have a choice to make. Do we engage in violence to try to get our way? Do we say, well, that's wrong in society and so I'm going to violently overthrow that or I'm going to use violent rhetoric to just beat the other side? Is that how we act in our country? Well, Brian says, followers of Jesus do not attempt to take over a country and force our way of life on everybody else. That's not the way that Jesus acts. That's not the way Jesus interacted with, with the Roman Empire. In, in second, or first, uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter writes, Jesus committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. In other words, Jesus' allegiance was to the highest power. He entrusted himself to God something bigger than any 
government. And because of his act of nonviolence and giving of himself, Jesus became an example to us about how we act. And, and Peter says, by his wounds, you have been healed. So that can mean lots of different things. It's called the theory of the atonement, and we don't have time to get into all that today. But one of the things it means is that Jesus sets an example for us, as the passage says, that the way that you really act in a powerful way in society, what real power looks like, is not violently overthrowing, it's not breaking into a Capitol building, it's not using violent rhetoric and name-calling and mocking and diminishing and, and dehumanizing your political opponents. It's not in seeing other Americans as enemies. The way that you exercise power as a follower of Jesus is you give of yourself. You think about others. When you are attacked, you don't retaliate in kind, but you're willing to absorb it and be an example of taking the high road. As one person said, when they go low, we go high. That's what a Jesus exercise of power looks like. And somehow that is healing to a society because it stops the cycle of violence. It doesn't perpetuate the tit for tat, back and forth, cable news, professional wrestling drama that permeates our culture now. The way of Jesus is, I don't just accept whatever I'm told from a, a political party or a government. I don't worship the president. I think deeply about what's going on in society as an exile. And the way I exercise my power is I don't try to overthrow. I don't use violence. I don't dehumanize people. But instead, I think about all of us and what's good for all of us. And even if that causes me to suffer, I don't retaliate in kind. And when they go low, we go high. Of course, that is healing in any relationship, in a strained friendship, in a marriage. Uh, and it's healing to a country. Now, of course, the other side has to be able to engage and, and, and lower the temperature and lower the rhetoric and be willing to work together. So there are two sides of the street. But as far as it depends on us, as Paul says, we, we can choose to try to live at peace. We point out what's wrong. From our position as exiles, we speak out for justice and righteousness. That's a, that's a theme that runs through the entire Bible. If, if Jesus talked about anything, it's that. That the kingdom of God is about doing what's right and just. Your will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. But as, as followers of Jesus... It's the way that we do that that makes all the difference in the world. And by not engaging in the violent rhetoric and by opening ourselves up and even absorbing that mistreatment from other people at times, we can go high. And that action has a healing effect on our country. Jesus took the high road. And as Brian opens the book, uh, in these first two chapters, he talks about who Jesus is versus the way of an empire or the way of a superpower or this violent, divisive political rhetoric that we are surrounded by all the time in, in cable so-called news and in, in um, you know, biased media and politicians who manipulate that and just essentially are trolls. And they just whip up their base by using rhetoric like this. 
trying to overthrow the government or force people to live the way that they think they should live, force their way of life on everybody else. That's not the way of Jesus. I saw a story this past December uh, that illustrates uh, illustrates for me the choice between people pledging allegiance to a higher authority and doing what's right versus being small-minded and only seeing your own needs or your own tribe, your own you know, your own party's point of view. In early December, an ER doctor in Sacramento named Taylor Nichols had been treating COVID-19 patients for months, but he had a new experience in which his compassion was tested. Dr. Nichols is Jewish, and as he worked his shift in the ER, a man was wheeled in on a stretcher who was struggling to breathe. They assumed, well, he probably has COVID and, and he's He's struggling to breathe, and so they, they opened his shirt uh, to begin to you know, take his vitals and begin the process of, of giving him support to help him breathe. And as they opened his shirt, this Jewish doctor, Dr. Nichols, saw this man covered in Nazi tattoos, symbols of the SS and a swastika on his chest. And this man who was struggling to breathe was begging this doctor to save his life, probably not even knowing the doctor is Jewish. And this Jewish doctor is seeing this this patient struggling to breathe covered in Nazi tattoos. And he was faced with a choice. And I just want to show you a quick video from the local news in Sacramento. It's two or three minutes long of Dr. Nichols talking about his choice. Let's watch. Welcome back. What is it like for a Jewish doctor to treat a coronavirus patient covered in Nazi tattoos? A Sacramento doctor is sharing his moment of struggle tonight on social media. And as CBS 13's Marissa Perlman reports, his story is now going viral. Dr. Taylor Nichols, a Jewish doctor at Mercy San Juan in Sacramento, says he's cared for patients with offensive tattoos before. But two weeks ago, for the first time, he questioned his compassion. It's a symbol of hate, and it's, um, it, it challenged me a bit. On Twitter, Dr. Nichols describes the encounter, the older man arriving by ambulance, struggling to breathe. He tells Dr. Nichols, don't let me die, Doc. As his shirt came off, he was put on a breathing machine, his SS and swastika tattoos broadly on display. Dr. Nichols promised he'd do his best. With this patient, I really didn't have an opportunity to talk to him. I was only left with the impact that that symbol had on me. But every coronavirus patient is a risk. And for the first time in his career, he questioned whether he wanted to keep that promise. It challenged me in a way that I didn't really expect. On Twitter, Dr. Nichols asked what would his patient think about a Jewish doctor taking care of him and what would happen if the roles were reversed. He says the pandemic has weighed heavily on him for months, with no end in sight as a new surge pushes doctors to their limits. Part of that is because of the stress that we're all under right now, and I know that other members of my team felt similarly. Isn't that great? Of course, the doctor chose to do the right thing. He acted to save the man's life, but he had to wonder if, if the tables had been turned and the man covered in Nazi tattoos was the doctor, would he have saved a Jewish man's life? But Dr. Nichols made the right choice. He took the high road. And that involved some suffering for him, didn't it? It was painful for him. You could see the pain. As he said, my ethics were challenged. 
I was more challenged than I realized. And, and this was after months of caring for COVID patients and, and working you know, long hours and, and weeks at a time, probably without a day off. But he took that challenge. He absorbed it. And in doing so, he didn't perpetuate this man's hatred and division, but he acted in a way that was literally healing to this man. So there are two responses to the anxiety that we live in right now and the political climate that we live in right now. One is to give in to ignorance and hate and bully, which is really the essence of fascism, as, as fascism is just an attempt to revive the Roman Empire. And, and uh, the other is to be committed to a higher ethic, to pledge allegiance to something higher than a party, a government, a president, a leader, even if people are offended by it, who hate you for it, even if it makes you a stranger in your own land, if, if it makes you an exile, to be committed to the higher ethic, the higher power. That's the choice that Christians face in the United States in the 21st century. Brian Zahn writes, it's not the task of the church to make America great again. The contemporary task of the church is to make Christianity countercultural again. And so Brian begins the book talking about who Jesus is and how the way of Jesus was countercultural in the Roman Empire, the time in which he lived. And here we are in a superpower as followers of Jesus in 21st century in America and pledging our allegiance to a higher power stops the cycle of violence and violent rhetoric, and it can bring healing to our country and to any relationship, a friendship, a strained family relationship, a marriage, uh, and to a country. So that's how we're beginning Lent. And I invite you to read the first two chapters of the book and then go to wellchurch.org and sign up for the new online connect group. Uh, This starts this coming Wednesday when you can discuss the reading invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for Brian Zahn, for his courage to be willing to write a book that directly challenges Christians in the 21st century United States. He wrote this book in 2019, probably a year and a half before we saw this come to full fruition at the Capitol. And as he begins the book talking about how the way of Jesus was countercultural in the Roman Empire, May we, as followers of Jesus and as exiles, look around and think deeply about our own society and what's happening here. And the same kind of bullying and domination and willingness to use violence and view other people as enemies and try to force your way of life on somebody else that was a part of the Roman Empire is gaining traction in the United States. That kind of nationalistic, fascistic tendency is gaining momentum in the United States. And lots of people who are committed to that way of life are self-professing Christians. For those of us who want to follow Jesus Christ, we feel like strangers in a strange land sometimes. This world is not our home because our allegiance is to something higher than just one political leader or a cable news network or a radio broadcaster. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we want to follow the example of Jesus 
in a time in which that is difficult in the United States. But that's the only thing that can stop the cycle of violence, that doesn't perpetuate uh, more seeing other people as the enemy and name-calling and mocking and dehumanizing people. And we've seen where all of that leads, even in recent history. It's the only way that we can bring healing to our country. By his wounds, you have been healed. And even though some of us feel wounded by friends, by family members, by co-workers, by people who you know, claim to be followers of you, and, and they have acted in ways that hurt us, they've said things that, that we were shocked to hear, and we've been alienated from them, exiled from them in a sense. God, we pray for your healing. And for, I guess, the comforting message that actually that puts us in the same place Jesus was in. When people hurled insults at him and he didn't retaliate. And he didn't threaten people back, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. A higher authority. And in that act, he stopped the cycle of violence. And he brought healing. God, as you heal us, our willingness to follow the countercultural way of Jesus in the United States brings healing to our country. And as difficult as that is, we're thankful that we get to be called to that and we get to be part of it. And so as we start this season of Lent, Jesus, we want to see you for who you really are and your countercultural way that brings healing this Easter season. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.